Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined by senior editor, Tess Thakra. Hello. And editorial associate, Abigail Kane. Hey, Isaac. Hello to both of you. So this week, um, Abby, it's great to have you. You're normally uh, behind the, I don't know, switchboard doing the production. I don't know anything about it, so I call it a switchboard. Yeah, Um, it's close enough. This week, we're going to be talking about frames. As I'm sure many of you read, Abby wrote a pretty incredible story about the frames market. Something, you know, one of those things where we see frames all the time, but maybe we don't think so much about them. So yeah, Abby, could you, could you maybe frame this story for us? Oh God. I worked on that all night last night. Why don't you start by telling us about the frames dealer you went to meet in Queens? Because that sounded kind of amazing. Yeah. So... The first interview that I did was with a guy named Diego Salazar, and he has a gallery in Queens, um, but he's got this huge collection of frames. It's like, I think, more than a thousand frames in these um, three different rooms. And he's been working in the frame industry for something like 51 years, I think. He moved here to New York when he was like right out of high school, started making frames with a famous frame um, company called Lowy Frames, went on to start his own company, and now he collects frames. How do you make a frame? Well, that I don't know. I'm not an expert in making frames. So the story was more focused on like market, the market side of it. So I could tell you a lot about what frames are worth. Right. I just remember something in your piece where you sort of talked about how like a certain frame or or Diego Salazar mentioned how a certain frame was meant to be seen in a certain light, like candlelight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he so this is the this is in his American frame room. Um, It was a Stanford White frame. Stanford White is like like the holy grail for american framers <laughs> um, of course um no but it's it has this like wire mesh that's like uh slightly raised off the surface so it has this mm. beautiful like delicate shadow pattern but couldn't tell you how they made that but i think that kind of raises an interesting question about frames which is sort of their relationship both to to the work that they're framing and to history more generally and all those things obviously inform one another i mean if you can maybe give us an overview of how framing has been thought about uh, from, from like its earliest days to, to now, is there like some big thematic shifts? Yes. Um, That is several centuries of history, but yeah, I mean like, I guess you can go back to like to the very, very beginning. So frames didn't used to be separate from the art back in like the 14th century they would just carve these wooden uh things to people for people to paint on that also just had decorative edges so actually we still have we have more frames from the 14th century than we do from like the 17th century because you can't take them off the art so in like the 1400s people made standalone started making standalone frames and then over time people started replacing the frames that surrounded the paintings because it was like the one way that you could buy a painting and put your mark on it Yeah, one of the details that I really liked in your piece was about Napoleon's reframing the entire collection of the Louvre. Yeah, so Napoleon is like a perfect example of this trend that happens in framing where every 30 years, give or take, which is basically a generation, people replace the entire set of frames in a collection, sort of to put their their stamp up until like about 1990. That was kind of the big turning point in frame scholarship because before... People thought, you know, frames don't really matter. If I take this one off and stick it in the attic, I'm going to throw it away in a couple yeah. of years. And that's when all of the frame shows started happening, Yeah, exactly. Right? Well, 1990 is when the Met had a frame-specific show, but there were a whole series of frame-specific shows in the 
late eighties and early nineties. And people started realizing, Oh, these are kind of works of art in themselves. And maybe we shouldn't give them away <laughs> as they were doing. But is, you know, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to ask a tough question here. Is a muse is an art museum, the right place to show a frame or is it a design object? Well, I can understand it being part of like the Mets purview, but if like the Whitney had a frame exhibition, I'd be like, what is, why? Well, so, I mean, that's an interesting question because like the history of framers includes a lot of sculptors. I mean, it also includes a lot of designers. Like I mentioned Stanford White before, obviously he's an architect and designer. Um, but the, the I talked to um, this man who's the frame conservator at the Getty and he, he's been working there for like 25 years. And he was telling me that frame conservation programs have only just popped up in schools in the last 10 years and so I asked him how did you get trained for your job and he was like well I got a got a like degree in sculpture hmm. and then they realized that I had like the the technical skills to conserve frames um, and then they just taught me the history later. Also presumably back in the day there was a very collaborative relationship between the framer and the artist. Mm-hmm. I would imagine there were framers and artists that worked closely together and these were frames that were being commissioned sort of in response to the, or, or custom made in response to an artwork. I, I'm just speculating here, but I, I imagine that there would have been a kind of uh, yeah. artistry in, in that sense. Too. I, don't, I don't know as much about like partnerships between framers and the artists, but I do know like there are a lot of examples of artists who made their own frames or thought a lot about how their work should be framed. I mean, it's easiest when the artist made their frames because then the the vision is the clearest. Whistler's really well known for making his own frames and he actually signed all of his frames to kind of make them art yeah, objects on their own so that pe- like I think that was like a sort of a fail-safe measure to make sure people didn't throw them away because they were worth something because they had a signature on them. Van Gogh made some of his own frames, although most of those don't exist anymore because the dealers of the impressionists threw away all the sort of simple original frames and replaced them with fancy ones. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about the way in which frames are either directly a part of the object, the work of art, or conceived of by the artist as like an art historical object. So you have someone like Cary James Marshall. I don't know if any of you guys have seen his exhibition at the Met Breuer, Mm -hmm. but when I saw it at the MCA in Chicago, he doesn't use frames, I believe, for anything, and he hammers a lot of his works in, they're actually hammered into the, the wall of the museum. And I thought that that's like kind of a subtle uh, gesture kind of maybe against the idea of a frame or like an art historical framing. His work really intervenes in art history and, and sort of the whiteness of it. So it's interesting to see how artists have sometimes chosen to either, yeah, endorse the frame as a work of art or or categorically reject the frame also as an artistic gesture. Yeah, I mean, it's a frame implies a certain completeness. Mm-hmm. And I think artists, a lot of artists will push it, push back against that on the basis that they want to leave an, a sort of open-endedness of interpretation. Right, and to your point, like where, where the work ends is maybe something they don't want to define necessarily. Carmen Herrera is an example of someone who would like paint around the side of her canvas and then not frame it, which today feels like maybe a tame gesture. But back when some of these works were first made, I believe in like the 1950s, you know, this was a, a big deal. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Rothko and Barnett Newman in the 50s were creating giant mural sized paintings that you were supposed to sort of walk into essentially and experience mm-hmm. immersively. So putting a frame around those wouldn't have made 
much sense. Yeah. But I'm curious, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me why the interest in frames fell away in, you know, mid the sort of mid-century period. But why do we think, can we speculate why the renewed interest in frames around the 80s and 90s? Like, is that a postmodern interest in the container or, I don't know, I mean, this is... The 80s were weird, you know? <laughs> we can't go too deep into it. We'll, we'll, we'll never get out. No, I'm just kidding. That's a good That's a good question. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, maybe they just sort of reached, like, the natural endpoint of not having frames. Like, I, one of the one of the people I interviewed for this story told kind of a funny anecdote about the Smithsonian putting these John Henry Twachman paintings literally in the wall. Like, they embedded them in the wall so as to avoid framing them. And then they had to take them out because they built the subway under it and the wall started to crack. And they were like, this is bad for the painting. <laughs> I mean, also, like, maybe there's something to be said for, like, there just being a lot more money in the art market starting, you know, like, maybe late 90s, early 2000s. And, I mean, people started selling frames in frame-specific auctions because people would buy them. Um, They don't do that anymore, actually. Those kind of stopped after the the recession. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, too, because when I think about what works really need a frame, I think, you know, old master. um, But as as we kind of heard about one or two podcasts ago from Alex... Old masters are old master works are being reframed with more contemporary frames. It's like a way to create the same interest in them that contemporary works of art have. So I guess it speaks to the power of the frame to to shift the history around a work pretty pretty powerfully and tangibly. Yeah, it's also maybe important to note that the value of a frame depends almost entirely on the value of the painting which it matches with and period. So like if when old masters were really selling for a lot of money their frames were selling for astronomical sums too ever since the recession and since people have been more focused on contemporary and modern works which generally don't have period frames because i mean period frames are old the frame market tanked Mm -hmm. um it hit kind of a low point in 2013 and it's making its way back up now according to when you say low point mm -hmm. what do you mean Five dollars, ten dollars. <laughs> how much is a frame? No, I mean, I guess you have to take it in sort of. You have to take that with a grain of salt because it tanked in comparison to earlier the earlier in the two thousands. Because like frames used, they used to give frames away. So this is a crazy story that I got from one of the frame dealers I was talking with. But he started his business in the, in the early nineteen eighties, and he just picked up his entire inventory for free. Like the galleries just called him, were like, Eli, can you come pick up these frames? We don't want them. And so he was like, Sure. Wow. He picked them up. And then in the late 80s, they started having these frame exhibitions and these frames went from free or from like $10 at an antique store in the Catskills or something to like $30,000. I was kidding about them costing $10, but I guess... They did, yeah, back in the 80s, yeah. Um, Because, I mean, that was the thing. They were out of style. It was like buying like old clothes or something. But, but, you know, if fashion is cyclical... um, Yeah, maybe they'll fall out of fashion again. I mean, personally, I feel like we shouldn't be so precious about frames hot take the room <laughs> just, is on fire i mean this is just Why? thinking about we i mean it's amazing how many times we've referenced the matt Breuer in in the podcast series this year but thinking about unfinished which is actually an appropriate exhibition to be talking about in this context since it would you know it was, it was full of a lot of 20th century process art that sort of wouldn't have suited a frame but thinking about seeing old masters in a brutalist space and how that kind of reconfigured the way you look at them, I think it's kind of interesting to put an old master in a modern frame and how does that make you see it differently? And mm-hmm. I guess the, the 
the thing that I think is important is not is to conserve them because I think there's there's like a direct correlation between people not being interested in framing with period frames and people just throwing away the frames. And part of the reason that frames are so expensive or period frames are so expensive now is that there's just not many of them left. Like especially American frames, because apparently during the Great Depression, people just like melted down Mm. the gold on the frames and then tossed the rest of the frames. And that's why there's just so few of them left. Um, And they can go for these crazy, crazy amounts of money. And also like one of the frame dealers I talked to said he doesn't, he thought his job would be done by now because there would be so few frames left that he couldn't get a new inventory. So now he, he, his like business is like 90% um, recreations of old frames. Mm. Um, Who, who recreates them? He does. He does. Yeah. So he has an inventory of like 3000 frames or something. And if someone brings him a painting that matches one of those frames, he'll recreate it. So we've talked quite a bit about the past and present of frames. Can you gaze into your crystal ball and tell us what the future of framing looks like? Yeah, I'll pull it out right now. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's actually definitely something that's on the mind of the people in the frame market right now. Two of the people that I talked to for the story separately mentioned starting frame museums because currently there are no frame museums. A lack we all palpably. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It'd be cool. It'd be cool. Uh, I mean, there are museums that are putting on frame-specific shows, like the Getty put on a frame show a few years ago, but their inventory is like 300 frames. And these people that I talked to, this, you know, Diego Salazar, the man in, in Queens, he has a thousand frames and he's just a private collector. Mm-hmm. And these other frame dealers have like 3000. So they've got a better inventory than the Getty um, in terms of frames mm-hmm. that don't have paintings in them. And I think that that's, that's going to be one of the things, some sort of way to preserve scholarship around these items that you know, will become increasingly rare. You can't get a new 19th century American frame. I think that's a great place to leave it. So I know uh, it's Thanksgiving week, but uh, where where are we going to be drinking white wine in the art world? Tess, let's start with you. I'm going to D.C. later this afternoon, and wow. I'm going to be checking. I know. It's of all places to be in D.C. right now. The swamp. Exactly. I'm going to go and make a shrine to Obama's legacy. Or something this got dark quickly uh, let's sorry <laughs> where are you gonna so, is that uh, what the art world should go see this week <laughs> yeah. you're trying yes, to this, is <laughs> this is when i become an artist guys uh i'm going to be checking out the new museum of african-american history which i'm oh, really yeah. excited about although i just found out that it's completely booked out for weeks and weeks say. and weeks yeah and March of so i'm gonna have to try and pull my press credentials otherwise mm. i don't know how the hell i'm gonna get in there's not like a standby line i don't know maybe waiting in a line so i hate doing it i hate lines that's black friday though that's like the whole point of this week <laughs> um waiting do you, in does, lines do you not know about amazon okay no one has to leave their house anymore <laughs> um anyway Abby, are you going to be doing anything nearly as cool as making a shrine and going to see uh this exhibition in dc no i can't measure up tess is way cooler than me but i will be seeing a show um i'm going to be going to the brooklyn museum they have a marilyn minter show on view right now and i feel like that's the kind of art i need right now that's pretty cool don't sell yourself short abby as for myself i'm going to be seeing this show that's opening up at the queen's museum about the black panthers it's a bunch of portraits of of uh, black panther members and it's it seems like it's a really community engaged exhibition. There'll be there'll be some public programming, and I also think it's an important thing to think about. You know, digging up America's America's past uh, radical 
movements um, that kind of resisted oppression is something that that I think a lot of people are are thinking about right now and, and any sort of rubric for that is is an important one to sort of be be thinking about. That's all we have time for this week. Uh, thanks to our guests, Abby and Tess. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Our producer this week was Demi Kim with assistance from Abigail. Uh, The theme music is by Broke for Free. See you guys next time.